evening. You were listening to the Yen uh, podcast. Today is Tuesday, the 12th of December. Two weeks until uh, Christmas Eve. Mm-hmm. So joining me this evening, we have the uh, new chair of the New Zealand Skeptics, <laughs> Bronwyn. Kiora. Welcome. And uh, we have uh, the old, old chair of the New Zealand Skeptics, Mark. <laughs> hey. We now have three cheers on this podcast. Wow. Three cheers. It's the IKEA podcast. <laughs> Let's not get sued. Um, can I can yeah, I just mere, rewind uh, a bit? Days, mere days into my Can I rewind, Craig, to the bit where you did the maths of saying that twelve plus fourteen is twenty-four? Uh yeah. You should actually, shouldn't you? Yes. Boxing uh, day okay. is in two weeks. Yeah, right. Boxing day is in two weeks. Yes. Yes. Okay. You are right. That yeah, I was thinking that as I said it, twelve and fourteen. Mm, yeah, okay. Anyway, Christmas is close. The goose is <laughs> two getting weeks fat. Yesterday, that's right. Yes, Christmas Day is two weeks yesterday. Oh God, this is getting confusing. Okay, but it's going to be confusing for the listeners because by the time this comes out, it, it'll be a bit later than that. It'll be tomorrow. Mm, doubtful. Probably Thursday. <laughs> anyway, <clears throat> so. We all enjoyed the conference. Yeah, it was uh, a great time. And um, the, what, the Dunedin uh, organizing committee did a great job. Great venue, yeah. de- great food throughout the day and at our um, gala event. Awesome entertainment. I enjoyed that. I enjoyed that lock picking demonstration or the puzzle locks. I thought mm, that was cool. Yeah, it was very entertaining. Mm. Yes, I did not know such a world existed. <laughs> what about you, Mark? Did you, were you aware of puzzle locks? <laughs> I was aware of puzzle locks. And I'm not impressed with puzzle locks. I prefer a hardcore padlock to pick, not a puzzle lock with tricks and nonsense. I I just want to be straight picking pins, raking, um, doing kind of the proper lock picking. Okay, that's my style. What what, what sort of lock would you have on a chastity belt? I think whatever lock you want. I presume they normally just come with like a, a loop that you put a padlock through. So you, you know, you you pick the difficulty. If you want to get like a forty foot container padlock, you can put that on your chastity belt. But at that point, uh, if, if at that point, you know, it's all about the belt. You can't. Can you wear any other clothes with like a belt like that or with a lock padlock like that? You'll have a bulge in the front, but I don't know. Presumably, it's okay. Doesn't seem very uh, fashion fashion forward. Or fashion practical. <laughs> I, I'm not one to judge when it comes to people's fashion. <laughs> uh, anyway, yes. <laughs> Somehow that image got into my mind. All right. Uh, okay. So we should get on with some topics, I guess. Um, so I wrote in the newsletter about, um, about the revelation that has been going on for the past couple of months, really. Um, this was Liz Gunn and her uh, Mother of All Revelations video that she put out just before the election saying that she had um, a whistleblower who had all this data about the COVID vaccine and how to cause all these deaths. But uh, she didn't want to use, she didn't want to actually put it out before the election because she thought it might uh, pollute the election results if, um, if something like that went out. Anyway, over the last, it must have been, what, about 10 days ago now, um, she actually came out this video recorded with this um, middle-aged man um, with, uh, with fairly grey hair. Um, I hear that his, 
anyway, his, he was on the video calling himself Winston Smith. Um, and anybody who's uh, read any uh, any uh, modern literature would probably know that Winston Smith is the protagonist in the George Orwell 1984 novel. And uh, Winston Smith works for the Ministry of Truth, and uh, his job is to essentially rewrite uh, policies and, and to keep in line with the with the party line, but eventually he uh, comes to realise that uh, the party is evil, and uh, he uh, tries to uh, do all sorts of nefarious and uh, subversive things in order to uh, uh, to let everybody know. At least that's my recollection of the of the novel. So, um, really, as as far as pseudonyms are concerned, that's not a bad one. I think I think he chose well. Yes. Yes, uh, but his real name is Barry Young, <laughs> and it didn't take very long uh, for people to to recognise who he was. Uh, New Zealand is a pretty small country, and you can actually find his profile on LinkedIn. Uh, so Barry Young is currently employed by uh, Te Whato Ora, which is our Ministry of Health. Um, a, he's an IT employee. He is a senior Oracle database administrator. So that means he basically looks after databases for uh, Te Whatu Ora. Um, so for those who aren't in the IT industry that are listening to our podcast, a, a database administrator is basically an IT professional who knows about how to structure data in, uh, in tables uh, and, and how to join tables together and get data out and perform queries and, and make sure that things are performing well and ironically secure the data um, <laughs> so that, that it's not available to people who shouldn't see that data. <laughs> Well, um, Barry decided that uh, the whole world should see some of the data that was in the uh, Ministry of Health databases. Uh, so he uh, illegally downloaded, well, it, sorry, allegedly illegally downloaded uh, some data, uh, which he, through his analysis, came to the conclusion that it showed that people were getting vaccinated with the COVID vaccine and uh, then dying soon after. So he did some sort of a correlation um, of data about when people were vaccinated and he joined that up with mortality data and said, well, look here, um, all these people have died after getting a vaccine. Now, I've not seen the data and... Uh, and the Ministry of Health have actually cre uh, got a legal injunction so that nobody is allowed to see the data. It's been um, sent to various overseas websites and they've had uh, forensic experts come in, which they've used to uh, basically track the data and get that data removed from overseas websites. Uh, yeah, so he's being called a whistleblower. Of course, all of the freedom movement people are praising him as a hero the likes of uh, Voices for Freedom, and he's also been on Alec Jones, Alex Jones's uh, show. He was on there for an hour. He's been sort of getting worldwide publicity, I think, and, and being um, hailed as a as a hero. Uh, but of course, he's he's not a hero, from what I understand. That data actually. Uh, wasn't properly anonymized. It wouldn't be difficult to figure out who the people were that the data was about. Um, and so I learned that by looking at David Hood's Twitter feed. And David Hood was the 
statistician that uh, we had come and talk to us at the conference. He did a very good talk uh, about statistics and uh, and and how things have been misused uh, during COVID. Um, but he did some analysis and showed that essentially what Barry Young was trying to claim, he could have just used public data to make the claims he was already making. He didn't really produce anything novel. I had a listen, ironically, to Sean Plunkett. And oh, Sean that Plunkett, must have hurt. <laughs> well, actually, it wasn't too bad because um, Sean Plunkett, who's on the on the platform and who to whom we uh, awarded the Mint Spoon a couple of years ago. Was it? Was it a couple of years ago? Was it last year? I can't remember. I have to look. I think it up. was last year. Was it? Yeah. Um, but anyway, he he has now put himself in the camp of not being a conspiracy theorist, at least in terms of COVID. He is now aligning himself with the reality side of things. And he did an interview with um, Helen Petusis Harris, and uh, Helen is. And an assistant professor, I understand, from the University of Auckland, and she also works for the Vaccine Information Centre, so she knows quite a lot about vaccines. And so she, uh, he, he was sort of talking to her about the data that had been released. I watched the video of the interview, and it's titled, A Real Expert Explains Why Liz Gunn's MOAR, that's the mother of all revelations, is a complete crock. <laughs> so it's quite refresh, refreshing to hear that. Nice. Uh, so, so Helen, I mean, Helen is quite the expert, right? She's, um, you know, she's known internationally for her work. She, I believe, has been a member of the Skeptics for a long time now. She's spoken at one of our conferences, I think the Auckland conference. Hmm. Uh, 2014, 2015, she spoke just about the history of vaccine denial. And it turns out it goes back a long way. Mm. Um, but yeah, she's she's great. And we've uh, we had a long to Skeptics in the Pub quite a while ago now. But um, Sean Plunkett definitely doesn't seem to be a fan of Liz Gunn. He described her as a former auto cue reader from television. <laughs> that is a burn. <laughs> <laughs> and um and he also uh, referred to reality check radio as rabbit hole radio which he said uh, may or may not be being funded by Steve Kirsch the foreign millionaire the tech guy who's uh, the anti-vaxxer who's been pushing all this stuff on Twitter and uh, trying to support the uh, whistleblower. So that is an interesting revelation. I don't know whether that was public knowledge or not. but Revelation, if it's true. And we also have to yes. bear in mind that uh, <laughs> Sean Plunkett is working for a rival conspiracy radio sure. show. <laughs> Indeed. Um, but and, and, for, somebody... and actually, and actually, for rival millionaires, um, he, you know, he's <laughs> had a lot of funny from the Wright Foundation. Um, yes, indeed, indeed. But one of the interesting revelations that that Helen was talking about in the interview was that, from her understanding of the data, some of the data was collected at vaccination sites done at palliative care facilities, so in hospices. People in hospices were being given the COVID vaccine and then dying at some time later, um, and not immediately, just dying sometime after the vaccine. And as I pointed out in my article, we're all going to die after we've had the vaccine. I'm just hoping that my death is many decades into the future. But mm. yeah, so a palliative care, a hospice, is is where people generally go to receive palliative care, as in uh, care to to make you feel better once all your other 
uh, options have been exhausted and um and that's generally at least sometimes where you go to die although i do know from my work in hospices um software for hospices that actually a lot of people actually get discharged from hospice so going to hospice isn't necessarily the uh, the end of the road Mm. Um, so this was this was part of the data set. So like there were there were different bits of data that he released. So this one was basically he I guess cherry picked we could say some vaccine batches and shown that for these batches there was a high death rate at some point after the vaccine was given. But it looks like these were chosen from palliative care. But there was another part of the data as well, which was he drawn this kind of it felt arbitrary line of 120 deaths and then show that like after the vaccine had been given nationally, that we started to see 120 or more deaths on a lot of days of the year, which didn't happen much beforehand, right? But mm. from what I understand, that is also a misreading of the data, which as David had told us at the conference, when you're analyzing death data, you need to be aware of the age distribution of the people in the country that you're dealing with. And for that and many other reasons, you know, just like raw numbers, again, if you're not controlling for the population size, then, of course, if a population grows, over time you're going to see more deaths. So it seems like there are several reasons why we would expect anyway to see more deaths now than we would have seen. I think he was comparing to, like, the last 15 years, so going back to, like, 2010 or so. So, of course, there are reasons why we'd see more deaths. And if you if you pick that line just where the number of deaths rises above at that certain point in time, you can make it look scary. You can make it look like, oh my God, everybody's dying now. And of course, he <laughs> pointed out the vaccine. But yeah, it, it seems like every time he touched data, he misanalyzed it, right? Yeah. Well, he, he's, a, he's a data specialist. He's not a scientist who knows how to analyze the data to figure out what it actually means. Yeah, so he knows he how to well store it. may well be a computer it. scientist, but um, he knows how to <laughs> store it efficiently, and he knows how to retrieve it speedily. He knows how to add indexes and other things to make sure that when you query the data, your query is fast. But yeah, he's not an expert in analysis. No. Um, so one of the things that David Hood was talking about was the Herald headline that was extremely misleading that said that we've just had our biggest increase in deaths in 100 years. And the implication that people took from that was that somehow the COVID vaccine was causing all these excess deaths. When in fact, if you look at the data, we had a, a deficiency of deaths during the uh, first couple of years of the pandemic because we protected ourselves by locking down and closing our borders. And so fewer people died than would normally have died. And, and that was then, a 7% drop, wasn't it? Like yeah, we, we saw 7%, 7% fewer deaths than were predicted Yeah, during and the then, pandemic. And then once we opened the borders and COVID came in and we had a few thousand people die from COVID, then it jumped back up, but it jumped back up to the average levels. And then there was a little bit of a peak above where it seems that people who might have been expected to die during the pen, the early pandemic years actually got their bit of life extension because they weren't being affected. Um, and so they eventually died of whatever cause later on. So the data is quite explainable. It's not a huge uh, issue with vaccines. And I think when, when the first video from Liz Gunn came out, 
the way it was being pitched was that people were going and getting vaccines and then essentially dropping dead. <laughs> yeah. And that just does not happen. It, where are all the bodies? How can you keep that quiet? If you go to the uh, New Zealand Lawyer website, uh, it used to have the Winston Smith video on it from Liz Gunn. That's now been taken down. I've not been able to locate it again. But as of the weekend, there was a letter there from... Uh, Logan Courtney. Logan Courtney, yes, who um, has now put up a video, which is a couple of minutes long, which is quite interesting. What he's doing is he's appealing to people to support uh, the whistleblower, to donate money to them, that this is an issue of free speech. So I don't think uh, that as an employee of, uh, as a DBA, you should be allowed to take any data you like and just uh, broadcast it across the internet <laughs> because that's free speech. Yeah, that, that doesn't pass. That That's a little bit of a stretch there. <laughs> One thing I found interesting with Liz Gunn's video is she kept trying to appeal to Winston Peters. I think she said that she talked to him the evening before this uh, Mother of All Revelations was released. And then at one point in the video, she talked about how it was ironic that, you know, this this whistleblower, Barry, had decided to call himself Winston. And yet there was mm -hmm. another Winston that was doing nothing to help. Uh, mm -hmm. And it was like she was crying out for Winston Peters to, you know, please be the voice of reason and help this whistleblower. But I, I'm guessing even Winston Peters knows what side is bread's butter on and not to wade into this. Uh, I was reading an article in the spinoff today that was talking about how Winston Peters had essentially courted the votes of the freedom movement, which got him over the line back into Parliament. And I think now he, at least to some extent, probably doesn't want to have anything to do with them. Mm -hmm. They've <laughs> served their usefulness. Yeah, exactly. He's not stupid. He's talking about having an inquiry into how the pandemic was handled. And nothing wrong with that. It'd be good to to review how things are handled, as long as it's not a uh, all the anti-vaxxers come out of the woodwork and uh, get to uh, have their little talking points. Mm. But anyway, it'll be uh, interesting to see what happens uh, with with uh, Barry. Um, he so he's been charged with uh, illegally uh, or accessing access a computer system for dishonest purposes. Um, that it would seem can carry a jail term. It'll be interesting to see where that leads. I think there should definitely be a, a deterrent factor in, in that, and that we definitely don't want IT professionals uh, broadcasting people's private data around the internet. Yeah, I hope so. And I think especially like health data, right, feels kind of special. Like that's the kind of stuff that really does need to be protected. Yeah, and, and it's a matter of trust, really. It's um, people people will not trust systems if if they think there's a risk that their data is going to be exposed anyway we'll um keep an eye on this and uh see what happens but Mark. i was just thinking um i was actually i was just thinking craig you know maybe winston peters doesn't need to have a you know a, an investigation or an inquiry at all because it seems that billy tk might be uh getting ahead of him on this Yes, this is the People's Inquiry or something. The New Zealand Citizen COVID-19 Inquiry, 2023 to 2025. Truth, two years. justice, <laughs> and reconciliation. Well, I mean, I guess it's it's a far sweeter message than Nuremberg 2.0, which we know <laughs> other IT professionals were involved in. God. Yes, other Oracle specialists. <laughs> oh, is this a thing? Like all Oracle specialists, just conspiracy theorists. We need to check this out. Correlation does equal causation, right? 
<laughs> Maybe, yes. And and the, the plural of anecdote is data, and we've got two data points now. <laughs> data. We can join a line between them. It's yeah, but on. um, but um, courtesy of uh, notable skeptic Kelvin Morgan, um, he was sort of apparently Billy TK um was online with North former Northland MP Matt King and a former District Court Justice Fred Stewart explaining the scope of this in- the scope of this inquiry and what their allegations are. Right. right. I think these kinds of courts have happened before. Like Sue Gray's been involved with um, at least one of them in the past. They pop up occasionally and they try and look all official and broadcast online. But it, it's just play acting, right? It's role playing. It's silliness. But I mean, you know, I'm when sh- you have this, when you have the, um, you know, the the sheriffs going around with the car and with the gear on, it's, you know, that's when it starts uh, going beyond mere cosplay. Mm. Oh, the sovereign citizen sheriffs. Yeah, they've been a little bit weird. Definitely one to keep an eye on. Hmm. Yes. Okay. So, um, Mark, are you going to be locked into your suburb? <laughs> that was not a segue, but it, it it was a lead into my article. Well done. That's a good start. So, yeah, so this is one that um, I'm sure a lot of skeptics have heard of, and I've had it on my list for a while to write about, and I was surprised that you hadn't picked up on it, Craig. I think you'd mentioned in a newsletter that we hadn't written about it. So it was nice to finally get an article put together about 15-minute cities. Um, this very benign idea um, that sounds lovely. So the idea basically is that we should be either redesigning existing cities or parts of cities or looking forward when making new suburbs to trying to make sure that all the amenities that we would need are within 10, 15 minutes of a, either walk or cycle. Um, some say maybe even public transport is enough for this. But it kind of gained popularity. It's a, a, a thing people have been pushing for a while now. But, but as of 2020, when COVID hit and people realized that having to travel a long way when, you're, when your government's trying to lock you down doesn't work, kind of gave a lot of momentum to this idea that maybe if we had much more local facilities, you know, we could do things like lockdown suburbs and, and stop the spread more effectively and just make our lives easier, basically. So it, it's gained a lot of popularity. Um there's been some analysis done over here, even starting before 2020. I found a nice video in Christchurch where like local councillors and other people were talking about uh, what a 15 minute city is, what the benefits can be. And then some really nice stories from people who would benefit from a 15 minute city, kind of the kind of people that like to cycle around and, you know, don't want to be knocked over by a car. So, yeah, the, the idea looks good. Hamilton's talked about it as well as Christchurch. And there are other places. There was a think tank I found that has done a really nice job of trying to analyze pretty much every suburb in New Zealand. They've got a really nice interactive map where you can bring up your local area, choose the amenity you'd be interested in, and it maps in your local area which residences or which parts of that area are within certain distances, 10 minutes, 15 minutes, etc. And I think you guys, you had a look at your suburbs to see what they look like? Yes, I did. Yeah, I did too. And and how are you looking? Are you uh, are you next door to a corner shop or a dairy, as we call them over here? I'm a twenty minute walk. Okay, bit more than fifteen. Mm, but I think there's a <laughs> I think there's actually like a clinic around the corner, but they don't advertise, so I didn't know. And I found a GP elsewhere before I realized that there was pretty much one next door. So there's also like a really you know when you think about that in terms of like a fifteen minute city, you need a lot of advertising and a lot of promotion that these services are nearby. 
Yeah, unless you have them in some kind of hub somewhere where they're all in the same place. But even so, I think there's also a lot of convincing of companies to do this because centralization obviously saves them money and, and makes them more efficient. But Craig, how's, how are you for your amenities? Well, uh, according to the map of Auckland, uh, I am in a 15-minute suburb. So I think they've sort of – they've actually – change the categorization here. So we're talking about 15-minute cities, but then they've done it on the basis of 15-minute suburbs. Yeah. So well, I guess a city is suburbs that are 15 yeah, minutes, but they yeah, call them 15-minute well, cities. I, I think the original idea with planning of 15-minute cities was more about how we're going to design the city so that everything is sort of within 15 minutes. And that implies probably quite a lot more um urbanization of housing, I think, a more high-rise style of housing, which I can see at least some people might be might be against. Um, but yes, in terms of where I live, our closest supermarket is about a kilometre away, so it's probably about a 10-minute walk. Nice. And that'll get me, get me to doctors and um, and various takeaways and, and the post office and so on. So, But a, the, the downside to this concept of a 15-minute suburb, um, which we experience here, is that when they design where I live, um, there's, they've not put in a huge amount of parking for people. And so the assumption was that you would be able to live here and not need a car, or at least not need as many cars, which means that now people are fighting over car parks because <laughs> everybody still wants to have a car. <laughs> Oh, it's New Zealand. Everybody will just park on the grass eventually, I'm sure. <laughs> well, I mean, it's like my neighborhood. I mean, I'm just a hop, skip and jump from a train station that has a parking ride. But yeah, still, we mostly drive because guess what? That train becomes, you know, that train can become a bus at any time outside of a uh, rush hour. <laughs> bus replacement no. services are infamous in Wellington. It's amazing. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. So, I mean, this is the reality. And the reality, obviously, there are. There are potential downsides, as we've just heard. There are definitely issues, uh, not least of which is convincing companies that they should be doing this and probably making less money out of running their shops. Um, but there are probably ways, again, of incentivizing to make sure that this kind of thing happens. But there's no good idea that a conspiracy theorist won't ruin. And and this is no exception. And in my article, I talked about, you know, previous kind of global movements, global ideas. So the um, agenda 21 and Agenda 2030, and then the Great Reset, which admittedly is a scary sounding name. They could have, they could have probably worked on that name a little bit before coming out with the idea. <laughs> Great Reset sounds like a genocide to me, at the very least. Um, but yeah, so with 15 minute cities. The conspiracy theorists have kind of they've they've looked at some examples. They've looked at some of the worst possible examples of what might be coming or that councils have threatened. And they've run with that and taken it to its slippery slope extreme. So Oxford seems to be an interesting place. So Oxford in the UK, um, it's trying to do its best to make the city available to everybody and part of that is trying to minimize the people using cars and using cars driving through suburbs and one of the things that i found which wasn't to do with a 15 minute city but was related it was more about i think um carbon reduction was the idea that um you shouldn't be driving through suburbs that you should be driving on ring roads that basically they have a ring road around cambridge and that if you want to go from one suburb to another then maybe you shouldn't drive through all these lovely little leafy streets maybe you should head out drive around and then head back in again to the suburb you want to be in and of course 
there are ways that you can do this, but one of the ways they talked about was things like finding people who who didn't do this, who chose to drive straight from suburb to suburb. Um, and this is the basis of at least part of what I'm seeing of this fear mongering. So the conspiracy theorists have taken this and they've then taken it to the next step, which is like, well, maybe they're going to ban you from leaving your 15 minute city, maybe your <laughs> your suburb. If they're going to supply everything you need, maybe they'll stop you leaving. Maybe maybe this will be you for life, basically, is living in this 15-minute prison. And looking locally to see what New Zealanders were saying about it, Voices for Freedom were one. So they had a newsletter come out a few months ago where they had um, the 20-minute city. They had like a diagram with four different ideas. So it started with the 20-minute city because Hamilton was actually talking about 20-minute cities rather than 15-minute cities back then. They then have a picture of terraced houses where they say 10-minute city. Then they've got apartment blocks for a five-minute city. And then they've got prison cells, the one-minute city. So they're, they're definitely going down the route this is a slippery slope to us all being imprisoned. I call this shenanigans because weren't they also trying to promote us all going off the grid and having our own farms? <laughs> they are. I don't think they're saying this is a good thing. I think this is the antithesis of what they want. But yeah, they want everybody to be basically ready for doomsday, the apocalypse, whatever it is that's coming. Um, they want everybody to be self-sufficient and pickling their own vegetables ready for when the shit hits the fan. Although I've not seen much of, from them of that either recently, but they were teaching people like, you know, how to, I don't know, make your own solar panels and, and nonsense like this. Um, so VFF looks like they've gone a bit quiet, although I did find another newsletter where they talked about how one of their members was going around giving local talks in the Wellington area. So if I find one popping up, I'm definitely going to go and sit in on it. And they were scaremongering about CBDCs as well. So um, central bank digital currencies, the idea that eventually the banks are going to go or the central bank is going to go digital. We'll have a digital currency. The government will be able to track everything we do. Every purchase we make, every dollar we earn, it will all be traceable. Um, the government will know everything about our lives from it. So VFF was one group, but I also found some flyers that had been handed around. So Palmerston North was one place that got these flyers, and I found similar flyers for Central Otago as well that had been handed out into people's mailboxes. And the flyers really were a whole bunch of fear I mean, saying things like everybody's going to be tracked and recorded. You're going to have a 15 minute travel limit without a permit. Uh, there are going to be no more camping holidays by the river. No more weekends away. No more freedom to travel outside of your 15 minute zone. No more choosing which doctor you want to see or which school your child will attend. No more privacy because there's going to be 24 seven surveillance cameras in all smart cities. And um, there was a question on it, which was in order to travel to another part of the the city to visit relatives or friends or to shop at a preferred retailer or visit a preferred medical center, for example, or gym, will there be a need to apply and pay for a pass? So they really have run with this and gone, well, you know, either we won't be allowed outside of 15 minutes, or maybe you need special dispensation to leave this 15 minute zone that you live in. There's no truth to this at all. I mean, the whole thing is just nonsense. Craig. I call bullshit on the uh, the idea that you would go and choose a different uh, doctor anyway. I mean, it takes you forever to try and get into your own your own doctor. You really don't have any choice. And Just finding I mean, one, yes. And I mean, how many parents choose schools that are outside of their district or outside of their um, catchment? Yeah. 
Oh, oh, maybe zoning schools is a secretive way of getting us to choose our own 15-minute city. I want to take my kids <laughs> to the Montessori place or the Rudolf Steiner school. No, you don't. No, have no, we, no. Have we, have no, we no, you about want... Montessori yet? No, we haven't, but we should. But no, Craig, you really want to send your children to either, I think, the City Impact High School. That's where your kids want oh, to go. Oh, no, that does not exist, does it? It does. Oh, my God. Oh, oh. No, sorry, this is derailing things. <laughs> no, <laughs> no that, well, this is depressing me at the very least. Oh, yeah. All right. So this sounds like a good series for you, Bronwyn. City Impact, Montessori and Steiner are all going to be ripe examples for what not to do when running a school. Well, I mean, Steiner is a good uh, example of what not to do in general. Um, yeah, no, Steiner does, fa- Steiner does fall into this long percolating uh, series I want to do on Havelock North and... Okay. All the delicious going on that happened in sort of the mid-century. So, yeah, watch so there this you've got space. Biodynamic farming, Eurythmia, his dance method, Steiner's list of nonsense just keeps giving. Walida. <laughs> oh, yeah. Homeopathy. Yay. So, yeah, so that that's basically it. Um, It turns out that, yeah, not only is there international fear-mongering about the idea of 15-minute cities, but as with a lot of conspiracy theories these days, it's it's come to New Zealand, and there's a bunch of New Zealanders that are running with it and trying to scare the population that our freedoms are being taken away. This is all it is a lot of the time, isn't it? It's like, oh, no, our freedoms. And yet I seem to be continuing to live a very free life, as I think the people around me are, despite the fact that our freedoms are consistently eroded. And I was just taking a quick little squiz through your old, your article, Mark, and you do mention like freedoms and dead and good old uh, Brian Tomicky's opinion. <laughs> he was also trying to have a, a pretty much a community within a building like it was supposed to be the megachurch and the school. And he did. He wanted to buy a few blocks, didn't he? And, and build yeah. like a walled like area where everybody in the church would live. Oh, so he maybe, was building so, so, a 15 minute city. So maybe, so maybe. So maybe he's actually the only person in this whole conversation who's talking from evidence or talking from experience and it, that, of how this that, failed. That video that I put in the article is like a minute and a half of Brian Tamaki, except that half of it is just him using a Jordan Peterson clip. He couldn't even be bothered talking for half of it. But Brian Tamaki does rant a little bit about 15-minute cities with this really ominous music behind it. The whole thing is very emotional. It was for the election that we've just had, so it was an attempt to garner votes. I can't imagine it worked. Well, we know it didn't. Well, yeah, he's he's certainly not in power, right? Except no. in his own mind. Except over his church. So, try 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 to find a trying to find a clever segue there, Craig. Uh, I'm I'm channeling a spirit <laughs> that tells me that you're going to talk about a a channel of a, a very interesting name, Styra. Yes, um, I think he's not a Kiwi by birth. He was born in Canada, but um, one of his parents um, sort of has that Swedish extraction, which is kind of where the name comes from. But yeah, no, um, Blair Styra. Very interesting how I came across this. It's another one of these uh, golden pieces, golden nuggets of information that came through my search for the skeptics calendar that we're still creating. Um, This one was a specific date that came regarding an article that we had also given a Bravo award to back in 1996. Um, I was completely curious. I'm like, who? Wow. Tabash or Tabash? Who is he? What what is all all this about? You know, how, what was this original article? Um, So that was originally written by Simon Collins. Now, Simon Collins is a well-known New Zealand journalist. He worked mainly for New Zealand Herald, but in between his two stints in New Zealand Herald, he was writing for um, the City Voice, which was a local 
city newspaper in Wellington for that ran for a few years in the 90s. Um, and it was just kind of interesting. And also the idea that this is part of a wider series about media, mostly channelers, like the modern channelers that we have in New Zealand. Because boy, boy, howdy, we have quite a few Kiwis who claim to be channeling dead Asians <laughs> who are 5,000 years old, which is a bit, which is audacious, you know, to think that you have, and because it's channeling, channeling's more about being able to access like an entity and like a very powerful entity, like a God or someone who's in the third dimension or the fifth dimension. So being able to channel them into a human body is supposed to be not only indicative of the power of the entity, but the power and the skill of the person doing the channeling, the vessel who's doing the channeling. Hmm. Whereas say simple mediumship, like we often see through the spiritualist church, what Kevin Cruikshank does. Um, that's just, Kelvin. you know, contacting the dead, contacting Kelvin dead Cruikshank. Kelvin, so, Kelvin Cruikshank. I really want to see a channeler like this. This is now my purpose in life, at least until I manage to do it, because channeling when because most of the time with channeling, right, the person who is channeling takes on the persona, takes on, you know, sometimes maybe an accent, <laughs> if not the language of the person they're channeling from one to three thousand years ago. And it it looks like such a piece of theater, like these people can be so dramatic mm. with the uh, the persona that they're channeling it larger than life. And I just I really want to see that because it looks hilarious. Yeah. And I kind hmm. of wonder, you know, which persona is real or is it all fake? You know, you have the persona, you try to be a meeker, milder, calmer person, which is one persona going pre-performance. And then you're this more gregarious, weirder, not you, not, you know, the initial you personality during the performance. Hmm. Um, Hasn't uh, Jeanette Wilson sort of dabbled in channeling? I mean, I know when uh, our late uh, Skeptics Committee member Russell uh, went to see her. He talked about how she was doing this weird sound when she was doing her healings, and that was sort of channeling some spirit surgeons, I think. Well, psychic surgery is sort of a very different beast, but you're saying them they were mm. channeling spirits. Well, yeah she, she, yeah, she was basically making this sort of weird sound, I guess. Yeah, no, it doesn't. It sounds kind of in line. You know, sometimes you want to have that division between, oh, something's happening and something's not. Because sometimes mm. with channelers, they can have, they, people can go into the trance, they close their eyes, and then it's just a different voice coming through. Others, you know, they do have their eyes open and they're walking around. They have, you know, they're more like, they're, they're more like a human, which can be a mm. weird experience in and of itself. But um, yeah, so the particular article that Simon Collins wrote about in 1996 was about Blair Styra. And it's a really funny story about how, you know, despite being exposed for, you know, fraudulent behavior, you know, Styra has actually, his star has kind of risen in the uh, world of, you know, I guess, what you call it? Psychics and spirits and mediums and channelers in the new age. So what had happened back in 1995, 96, he came, um, Styra, took on had had his first consultation which was chart which he was charging 90 bucks an hour for back in 1995 so adjusted for today's amounts money would be about 172 bucks which is mm. you know that was a bit of money in the 90s 90 dollars so was US. a bit of money in the 90s mm. um so this person um juliana bronze had a reading and Tab the spirit that Sarah works with them named tabash came down and said, oh, yes, 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 you, you you were this lady, Lady Catherine Winthrop. You were part of the uh, Marlborough set, which was which were friends of the Prince and Princess of Wales, sometimes in, sometime in the late 1800s, early 1900s. Blair was also a 
was your best friend and they were Lady Lavinia. Oh, and also you were a lesbian and the two of you traveled to Italy together multiple times. So she was quite taken by this and clearly remained friends and went to and Ju- Juliana. I mean, Juliana was quite taken by this, really impressed, went, kept on going to several other of the sessions that Styra would hold down at the Museum Theatrette, which is where he would have, you know, a weekly, you know, channeling session. She, th- they would be for five bucks, but she'd also have still her individual sessions, her and her daughter. Mm. Julie, I, Julie. I guess that's that. That's an interesting thing that you you get a challenge channeler who says that oh you are this royalty figure. Mm-hmm. I guess it sort of strokes your ego really and and makes you think ah I'm I'm somebody special because the channeler has said that I used to yeah. be royalty. And it seems that maybe this giving a name or and giving giving the name of somebody who could have been, who could potentially be traced was where yes. he messed up this time because in the article he had also he had told other people like oh you are the sister of a Namibian queen you know you were a <laughs> Egyptian slave no one can track that but you know you were good friends with Cleopatra yeah um <laughs> but the, in the UK of course they keep a good record of the peerage and what Juliana Bronze did despite you know she was friends with Styra and his wife um you know went to their place for you know went to their wedding was on the list on the plan to go to their Christmas party, but she ends up getting a letter back, you know, cause she sent an inquiry all the way to the UK saying, Oh, does this person exist? And yeah, this archivist in the UK is like, Nope, Lavinia doesn't exist. There's no record of Catherine Winthrop. And that just caused everything to fall down around Juliana's ears. And Juliana tried to confront Styra and Kay and they kind of shut her down, disinvited her from Christmas. <laughs> And yeah, Juliana did not take that standing, uh, take that sitting down. She tried to initially, um, she demanded her $420 back. Cyrus said no, had his own demands. So then she decided, okay, I'm going to sue you for damages. Um, so eventually um, she got her original amount, which was 420 back under the promise that she would not contact the Commerce Commission. Uh, but she was allowed to speak and, and do, and I think it was also not, go through any other legal rigmarole, but she was allowed to talk to the press. There weren't any prohibitions to talking to the press, which is what Juliana did. And there was a really great quote from uh, from somebody in government about, you know, yeah, you know, yes, if you do provide, if you do promise to provide a service, you should provide it. But how anyone could assess whether, you know, you received a medium, your service from a medium or from a spirit, don't even know how to start. <laughs> I guess, I mean, a really good part of this, right, is most of the time when people are scammed and realize that they're scammed, they just go quietly into the night. But for this woman, Juliana, to to speak up and actually say publicly and, you know, try and get interviews to talk about how she'd been scammed and Blair Styra was a con artist, good on her for being bold enough to admit she'd been conned and to speak up about it. Yeah. It just doesn't happen enough. No, absolutely. It seemed like uh, they were... Um, more than just customer. Yeah, they were friends. Yeah, they were friends. And so she obviously, she was offended. (laughs) She thought they were friends. You know, you never really know quite with these, um, um, with these sort of relationships, you know, were they just trying to get like a little bit, you know, lots of money from her? I mean, she sent, gave them a hundred dollar wedding gift. Who knows exactly how close they were, if it was just something more for on her mind. What happened Adjacent to the article is that uh, Simon also interviewed a few other people who, ha- who had previous involvement with Styra, and most of them said, oh, yeah, it's all in good fun. You know, it's just for a laugh. Take it with a pinch of salt. We'll go back. We'll pay money. You know, and maybe that's maybe more so for the $5 shows than dropping $90 for a consultation. 
And one of them said, you know, you can kind of tell how his, you know, kind of in terms of their response. She's like, yeah, I couldn't take him seriously. You can kind of see how his accent and the whole act and persona drops as the uh, reading goes on. So this clearly, you know, people weren't bothered. He had a radio show at the time on Wellington Access Radio called Talking with Tabash. Eventually that got, you know, after two years on the radio, around the time that this article was coming out, eventually it was canceled or came to an end, so to speak. And it seemed that it was quite quiet. I haven't been able to come across any other archival records about what Tabash was, what Steyer and Tabash were doing in this time until maybe about the mid to, you know, what was it? Mid 2000s. And he got into contact with, he got somehow he got into contact with Dolores Cannon. Um, a lot of people won't know Dolores Cannon, but she's something of a figure within, you know, paranormal UFO research, past life regression, if you're into those sort of topics, she's a big person there because she has created some sort of quantum QHHT, which is a sort of a quantum healing technique um, for past life regression. That's quite that's actually practiced in, by a few people in New Zealand. Um, she's also an author. And it was while apparently while Syra was reading one of those books, a whole quote unquote happenstance situation. Uh, Dolores was in New Zealand for some reason to give talks and he got introduced to her by some friends and through her influence, um, all of a sudden, Styra got onto a state, got an audience in America. You know, he's going to places like Mount Shasta, you know, which are pretty, you know, Mount Shasta is a bit of a hot spot for um, people who are into new age and spiritual uh, topics. So have we talked about who Tabash is that she's channeling? Who Who is this Tabash there's, character? There's not a lot to know about Tabash. Um, he is a 5,000-year-old Sumerian merchant. And how Styra sort of, he just sort of, you know, Styra channels him. And Styra has claimed that when he channels, Tabash takes over his body. And Styra goes off and sends out his energy to other people who need his help around the world. So he says he has personal missions that he undergoes while Tabash takes over his body. All right. So he doesn't go and do his shopping online or anything while Tabash is in control. No, no. And people sort of comment that, you know, people say Tabash can be blunt, but funny. He'll tell it to you straight. And that's the best that I can uh, get out of them. But he, Syra wrote a book called um, Don't Change the Channel. He also wrote another book called Who Catharted? You know, so these kind of titles made me laugh. <laughs> but um, Syra said he uh, co-wrote this book with Tabash. So there'll be a chapter where Styra talks about his life growing up. And then there'll be a chapter where Tabash sort of gives a teaching. Shall I do a reading? Yes. Yes, please. Okay. Collective consciousness channel. <laughs> I, I'm channeling. I'm, I'm trying to de-channel my inner rage. Collective consciousness works in an interesting way here. Some souls will choose to participate in a destiny that involves many other souls. They will choose to be part of a certain event that has major implications on their own karma, as much as it would of the people they're connected with, and in some cases, the world. In recent times, the events of 9/11 are a prime example of such a situation. All those souls who departed into the spirit that day had basically signed up for the event, consequently expanding their own consciousness by participating in being victims of an act of terrorism. Oh, geez. It's a bit rough. It's, it's absolutely audacious. Yes. Okay. That's pretty awful. It's pretty intense. Yes. But so I- is he still based in New Zealand? Yeah, he, he? he is. He is. Um, I think he's probably in the same. Well, uh, yeah, he's still in the Wellington area. Bronwyn stalked the house that he lives in, so she sent <laughs> me pictures of it. 
Okay. Well, I mean, I've said, you know, in this in Simon Collins article, he posted a picture of the house, gave the street at where it was. And looking along the street, I was able to find the house. I don't know if he's still living in that exact property now. So I've gone and visited his website and I'm intrigued that there are various photos of him on there. And he's advertising an event in February, 6th, February 16th in Sydney. And he looks very clean cut and young in comparison to the uh, photo of him uh, above where he looks more like a middle-aged man. I, I'm trying to reconcile the two images unless the photo that he's got from the promotional um, thing in Sydney is a very old photo. It's hard to say, really. Yeah, that was in February this year. That event has already happened, sadly. Oh, yes. So right. you Sorry. can't yes. fly over there and see him, I'm afraid. Oh, Greg. Damn. You may just have to stalk his house and uh when next time you're in Wellington, see if you can see him. Or book a book well, a private consultation. Then you can tell us how much he's charging. Right. But um now he you know, I mean, one of the things that comes out in the book is how much he likes to tell people, you know, write about I went to the gym. And I've listened to a couple of inter- uh, interview that he had with Paul Williams and a couple other podcasts just briefly. And yeah, people talk about like, yo, you're the guy in the muscle shirt, you know, and he does talk about going to the gym a lot. So he does take care of himself if we're going to talk about physicality here. And I don't think we do want to talk about physicality of a channeler. So he is still, he's as I said, he is still very much active. Um, Sometimes he, last time I heard him sort of do something a little bit free for the Wellington Spiritualist Church, which he sort of got to start with as a medium, um, was back in 2018. Otherwise, yeah, he's doing a lot of stuff both most a couple things in New Zealand, but mostly Australia and the and the US. Um, what was it? Um, hundred and seventy dollars, hmm. sometimes more, to go see him, see his workshops. Oof! You wonder and how these what... people get started. Like, how is it that they just suddenly become a channeler? And is it just the luck of the draw that they have a good technique and can can find some success? And are there failed channelers out there who who weren't any good and and couldn't manage to sell their services? There, there is. If I mean, if you're, if we went to Mark and I went to a spiritualist church with a couple of our other friends from the Wellington Skeptics. So there is actually a formalized teaching um, mm. circuit where right. people who want to sort of get into the act of maybe mediumship more so than channeling, they get that practice. And yep. there's really not much, I mean, t- there's really not much difference between be- acting as a medium and acting as a channeler, other than who you're claiming that you are, whose spirit is coming into you. If you're a medium, it's a dead human. If you're a channeler, then it's ISIS. It's Buddha. It's hmm. aliens. Somebody. Yeah. <laughs> um, if you want to see like a bad psychic, then spiritualist churches are good places to go. Like I've been to a spiritualist service maybe six or seven years ago now where the reader got no hits and got no hits. They they tried asking if anybody knew someone with the surname of Brown and got no hits in the audience. It was just <laughs> excruciatingly painful to watch somebody try. Another try some, yeah, something that's that's so like everybody knows someone with the surname of Brown. It's a very popular surname. And it turns out in our audience of about 15 people, nobody 
connected with that at all. And so this is kind of like a it's a proving ground. It's a testing ground where they offer free readings and they get support from the other members and they get to try it out in a kind of a, a low stress environment because everybody they're reading for is either a big believer, big enough that they're going there or they're another psychic. So um, it's kind of a it's a nice, safe air place for them to do it. And it's a great place for skeptics to go and get free readings. Good place for them to hone their cold reading techniques. Mm. Exactly. Yeah. But, you know, I think he sort of came at a really interesting time. I mean, he ha- sort of did have a start in the late 80s, early 90s. Uh, and back then, what could you sell? Like, I mean, being on the radio was, you know, radio was pretty important back then. Selling tapes, um, doing these things for five, six dollars. You know, people are bored on a Wednesday, Thursday night. I mean, it's really no different than someone taking in an, a midnight showing of Rocky Horror Picture Show. You know, it's a niche little weird little activity that you can do in Wellington City. And doesn't that make Wellington a wonderful place to live? Um, nowadays, to make money in this sort of thing, uh, you know, you up you up the money on your consultations. He does do consultations on well, his website still says he does consultations on Skype. Skype <laughs> is still popular. Yeah. But what happens is that because of the social media presence, he does a lot of, you know, he's doing podcasts like we do. Um, He's doing a lot of cross collaboration with other people who are into the mediumship channeling spheres thing. So that's also, you know, gradually increasing his spreading out his the, the reach that he has. And from what I've read from the stuff that he's been putting out recently, he is name dropping Delores Cannon as much as he can. Like this whole thing about I'm close personal friends with her. We got on really well. It, it, like he's really pushing that, to, I guess, try and gain credibility. Yeah, yeah. No, I think he, I think he's um still he's I think he's quite close to Dolores's daughter, Julia. Um, but yeah, Dolores is a figure, you know, maybe doesn't reach our ears in terms of skepticism, but seems to be a pretty influential figure in the realms that she was busy, that she was quite busy in, in terms of, you know, as I said, past life regression, um, hypno, um, being a hypnotist. And in the last years of her life, uh, UFOs. I mean, she had 700 people attend that Ozark Mountain Conference when she was the president. So, I mean, wow. You know, you know she's, she's, a, you know, maybe it's more so the topic than Dolores, but. Still, you're able to draw that many people to uh, something that you do. It's pretty impressive. Mm. Right. What do we have coming up? A few things. Um, Christmas. <laughs> well, um, this Friday, we have our Skeptics in the Pub meetup inside the Intercontinental Continental, Inter- Intercontinental Hotel <laughs> on 2 Gray Street inside the hotel in the lobby lounge, which is the bar. Um, do not go to the 2 Gray Street restaurant. Um, there'll be a bunch of we're back to this again Mark we are oh my god we should pre-record this bit and just press play at this moment that would be clever that would be smart Um, but then again then you have Dunedin who shows up with all these different dates so they will have their next skeptics in the pub this Thursday which could be today depending on when this podcast is released Um, so Thursday December 14th at 6pm they'll be at Umbrella's Kitchen and Bar and Mark, what's happening with um, your science-based activism healthcare in the pub? <laughs> <laughs> That's close enough. That'll do. Um, it's not happening next week because it's or whenever it's meant to happen, it's too close to Christmas. So we figure the pubs are going to be really busy with people celebrating and we don't want to be sitting in there with a couple of laptops getting squished. So New Year will be uh, a return to activism. 
And as for Auckland, well, we would normally be on the first Tuesday in the month, but that's the 2nd of January. So I doubt that we're going to have one then. It'll most likely be the the 9th or the 16th. But anyway, we will no doubt have another podcast before then, so we can can promote it then. I think so. I think we're done then. That'll be in a couple of weeks. We'll actually also have another uh, Skeptics in Cyberspace as well. Ah, yes. Yes, indeed. So you have been listening to the Yena podcast. If you'd like to give us some feedback, give us an email, write us podcast at skeptics.nz. See you all next time. Bye. See ya. Okay.